Good morning. Uh, it's good to be with each of you again today, both in person and online, as we uh, continue to walk through the book of Mark, which we've been doing for a couple months. And during this series, we've um, been looking at kind of snapshots of Jesus' life, his interactions with the people of Israel. And the past uh, few weeks, we've seen Mark transition from uh, Jesus' teaching uh, to Jesus' teaching ministry. And as, as we all know, he primarily uses parables to do that. Uh, but this morning, uh, we are going to be looking not at a parable, but an actual event that happened um, that Jesus does use as a teaching moment for his disciples. It's, it's a story about faith that we just heard. With a, a height of 187 feet at its peak, a width of 3,400 feet stretching across three waterfalls, two nations pouring out 6 million cubic feet of water a minute, Niagara Falls is a marvel of the world. I've been there. I'm sure a lot of you have too. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget when I saw like the sheer intensity and the, the ferociousness of the water. I don't know if I'd ever experienced something quite like that before. And during the, the winter of 1858, so a long time ago, a 34-year-old French acrobat who had been known for some of his um, antics in the circus and other things, his name was Jean-Francois Gravelette, which, sorry about the modicum of a French accent, that was rough. Um, better known as Monsieur uh, Charles Blondin, Blondin for his blonde hair. He traveled Niagara Falls to be the first person to walk across Niagara Falls on a cable. He never worked with a net. He asked them to not put one out there. He wanted no safety precautions. He thought safety precautions would actually lead to failure, right? And he wanted, he needed that pressure. And uh, he gets there in the winter, but because of the dangerous weather, he waits until the summer to officially do it. And that time the buzz had grown. The masses had assembled. The gamblers were taking bets. Would he live? Would he die? Would he be able to do it? 25,000 people showed up that day to Niagara Falls. This guy was so legit that he took the cable, right, that uh, was supposed to be attached to one side. He climbed down the side of uh, the mountain next to it, attached the cable 200 feet, climbed back up uh, before he even did the feat itself. So um, this guy did not mess around. So at 5 o'clock on uh, the summer day, in pink tights with spangles on them and leather shoes, he picks up his bouncing pole. So he did have a pole, which is 26 feet long and 50, 50 pounds of weight. And he starts to walk across. Children clung to mother's legs. Partners hid behind each other. Uh, apparently a few people fainted. A third of the way across, this guy, across Niagara Falls, he stops. He sits down on the cable. He pulls up a string that he had attached beforehand, pulls out a bottle of wine and, and drinks a glass of wine. This guy was insane. He walks across, rests 20 minutes, walks back. And one of the guys that helped pull him up uh, after he was done said to him, I wouldn't look at anything like that again for a million dollars. That's how stressed out he was watching him. So, but Blondin wasn't done. He followed up that stunt with an encore performance on July 4th and then another one on July 15th. The president, Millard Fillmore, came to that one. Blondin walked across and back with a wheelbarrow at one time. He did it a few weeks later somersaulting and doing backflips. He even hung off the cable with one hand at one point. This guy was crazy. But his biggest feat, his biggest 
most outrageous feat was his last one. Blondin's manager, Harry Colcord was his name, assented to go across the cable, across Niagara Falls, on Blondin's back. He went back and forth, and he made it. They both did. And Blondin died many years later, but of natural causes, not from any stunt that he did, which is amazing. But I I thought about this story that I heard this week, and the first thing I thought about was the faith that his manager had in Blondin is astounding. It's almost unbelievable. He put his life in the hands of someone else, trusting them so much and their abilities and what that they could do that no harm would come to him. His life was literally, like completely, his life was in his hands or on his back, right? And he had to have enough faith in the guy to be willing to do it. And as Christians, I think this is the type of faith that we aspire to in Christ. That we're so willing to trust Jesus that we would trust him with our lives. Even in the most dangerous of circumstances or the most ordinary of circumstances. It's that level of commitment to Christ is what it means to be a Christ follower. To put that amount of faith in him. So what's faith? I feel like faith is easy to talk about in those terms, like we understand it. But to put a definition on it can be a little confusing. Uh, Burkhoff in the Systematic Theology says in both Testaments, faith is the same radical self-commitment to God, not merely as the highest good of the soul, but as the gracious Savior of the sinner. So um, a radical self-commitment to God is the highest good of the soul at the minimum, and the gracious Savior of our sin kind of at the foundation level. In Hebrews, faith is defined as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So it's got this nuance of being assured of of what we hope is true in the promises of Jesus. And then the conviction that they're true even if we can't see them. Or let's just do a plain word definition. It's the believer's attachment of mind, heart, and will to Jesus Christ. To all his benefits, including the coming of the kingdom and its fullness. The person of faith believes that the gospel is true and believes that Jesus Christ um, and that trusts in him alone for salvation, daily guidance, and all else that is good. This is what faith is. But it's that idea of mind, heart, and will is probably the best way to understand faith, I think. And this idea has come up a million times in our Wednesday morning Bible study. Um, Our very own Mike O'Hare has talked about it a couple times. And that study is kind of like my think tank at times because those men are significantly wiser and smarter than I am. Um, (laughs) That's an amen from our elder in the back. One thing that we've talked about a few times is that there are these different aspects of faith. Knowledge, assent, trust, mind, body, heart. So let's kind of unpack those a little bit. Knowledge is of the intellect, right? So you believe something is real. It's an intellectual acknowledgement of existence. So let's take all of you and transport you to the story that we just talked about, 1858. It's the summer. You heard about this crazy acrobat. He's going to walk across Niagara Falls. You're interested. So you go. You drive up there. You see Blondin for the first time. You acknowledge that he's real. That's the first step of faith. You see him. You believe he's real. But what about the second level, the ascent piece? Ascent would not be just acknowledging his existence, right? But actually trusting and believing. This is kind of how we primarily think about faith. It's the trusting and believing piece, right? So that would be to say, I believe and trust that Blondin could walk across Niagara Falls. And you know what? I believe and trust so much 
that I would get on his back, that he would be able to walk there and back. That's the second aspect. But third, the final, maybe even the most important part, is the will. There's a difference between acknowledging he exists, even believing, trusting that he could walk you across and back, and actually climbing on his back yourself, right? And that's that last piece of faith. It's actually climbing on his back, the action step, the willful piece of faith that I think sometimes we miss. But this is faith, knowledge, assent, and will, mind, heart, and body. And as Christians, all of these apply to what it means to put faith in Jesus Christ. And all three were missing in that story that we just heard. If they really acknowledged who he was, assented and believed and submitted their will to him, all three, I wonder if they would have been as scared as they were. I wonder if they would have been trembling, as it says. Their faith should have been enough. And it's enough for us, too, though we don't always live that way. We're not on a boat with hurricane force winds coming at us, but we all, in our own way, struggle with the chaos of life itself, right? Perhaps more this year than any other, if we're honest, we feel the chaos of the world pressing in on us. And what happens when we're in chaos, I think, is we try to cling to something, right? Always. Many of us um, turn inward when we cling to ourselves. And we say, the only way that I can find peace in this chaos is to figure it out myself. Sometimes people, we cling to others. And we say, no, this person will pull me out. And yet they fail us as we fail ourselves. Sometimes we ignore that chaos in our lives. And what ends up happening is it grows and it deepens until we can't bear it anymore and it spills over. Or or we self-soothe with vices, addictions, anything to make us feel something so we don't have to deal with that that we feel deep inside. Ultimately, this is a sin issue, right? Whether our sin, uh, our own sin, our sin done to us, or the brokenness of the world in general, sin creates chaos because it's inherently disruptive to God's created order, both in our hearts and in the world. But what this passage shows us is that actually the only hope that we have in chaos that uh, sin causes is faith in Jesus. Saving faith, but also a life fully in submission to him and his lordship. So in all three, in our minds, in our hearts, in our bodies, only when we put that faith in Jesus will we find the peace that we're looking for. Because it's there that we find freedom from sin. And this truly is what that passage that we were just reading was showing us. So that that is our thesis today, that in the chaos of life, our only hope is putting faith in Christ. And today we're going to see three ways that we're able to do that. First, Christ is present in our chaos. He has power over our chaos. And third, he has purpose for it. So he's present in it, has power over it, and has purpose for it. So first, he's present. Verse 35 says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were there with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. One thing I want to say is this. One thing that biblical exegetes or pastors do wrong sometimes is that we miss the immediate context of the text. This is important because if we miss the context, we miss on the meeting. 
So I want to be careful that we don't do that in this passage. What, what I mean by that is this. There was a real storm that happened. The, the, the thing that they faced that, that, that was true, they, they really were scared for their lives. Like they thought they were going to die. The Sea of Galilee is in a basin, right? And it's surrounded by mountains and violent winds are able to come up through the southwest kind of area of the basin. And, and because of that huge storms, like hurricane force winds, are able to come almost out of nowhere. And um, it mentions that they go and they fish in the evening. And, and part of the reason they do that is because the storms are most powerful in the afternoon. They have time to kind of, um, kind of heat up, essentially, the, the winds do, and then they die down. But on the off times that a storm does come in the morning or it does come in the evening, they're especially powerful. They're even worse. So the fact that they were hit by a storm like this in the evening in the Sea of Galilee means it was one of the most dangerous storms that they could have faced. And these guys were like experienced fishermen, right? Their livelihood before Jesus was fishing. This was their thing. So the fact that they were as terrified as they were means this wasn't a normal thing. They thought they were done for. And yet Jesus was there. He was in the boat. And though they realized that, they didn't have faith that his presence meant peace, even amongst life-threatening odds, true chaos. They missed that the God of the universe was in the boat with them. But I'd be remiss if I didn't point out some symbolic aspects of this act as well. Ancient Near East mythology often depicted um, a storm god, right? And he would uh, trump, uh, triumph over raging waters, uh, especially over a sea monster that they literally would name chaos, right? So even Hebrew poetry would describe our god as a powerful victory over that god of chaos. Later in this passage, when Jesus rebukes the wind and storms, he actually uses the same exorcism language he uses when he drives out demons out of people. So uh, there's this idea that though the disciples were truly fearing for their lives, that this was a real storm, the storm also depicts and symbolizes the power of sin and evil in the world, just as that sea monster in ancient Near Eastern mythology did. So what does that mean for us? Uh, As I mentioned earlier, sin creates chaos. The two go hand in hand, both in in our hearts and in the world, and I feel like we know that on some level, right? And sometimes it does it subtly shifting and perverting our perspective just a little bit, right? And and what ends up happening there is it it starts to whittle away at our heart, causing deeper rifts in it than we realize. Sometimes it creates such chaos in our lives, though, that we feel like everything is spinning out of control completely, Sometimes, maybe even like the disciples on the boat, it it, it creates such anxiety in our heart that it feels like our very life is in danger. I think, though, one of the most important things that we can realize in the midst of that anxiety and then that chaos is that we're not alone. That Christ Jesus is present with us. He's in the boat. Here's what's amazing. He was so absolutely at peace and calm and not fearful for his life that he was able to sleep during a storm that even the most veteran fishermen were terrified of. And one thing I love about the story is that it highlights both Jesus' humanity and his deity. 
right? Often the Gospels will highlight one or the other, and it'll assume one or the other, right? So it'll highlight Jesus' identity and assume his humanity or vice versa. But what this passage does is it highlights both his humanity and his deity. Think about it this way. Jesus was tired. He was exhausted. So he slept. That's a very human thing that he did. He had been teaching and preaching, and he needed rest. So he let his disciples do their thing, fish, and he slept. We learn from that. Some of you are exhausted this morning. Some of you have felt the chaos of life, especially this year, so heavily that it's worn you down. What if Jesus is telling you this morning to be calm? I'm here. I'm present with you. I see your exhaustion and I'm present. Maybe he's even calling you to rest. Jesus modeled this for us in his humanity that sometimes we need that deep soul rest, even at the expense of other things. Or as one of my favorite pastors in Columbia, South Carolina, Sammy Rhodes says, sometimes the holiest thing you can do is take a nap. I think that's true. But we also do see Jesus' deity, right? And we see it later in the verses when he calms the storm. We see it in the fact that he was able to sleep during a storm with hurricane-force winds. I think only God could probably do that, right? Um, but I think the reason he was able to sleep is because he knew that his time hadn't, wasn't coming yet. His time was coming, but it wasn't yet. He knew the end of his story, and he knew the end of the disciples' story. And there's deep peace that comes with that. Those of you that are feeling the, the chaos of life and sin pressing all around you this morning, yes, Jesus sees you and he's present with you, but even more than that, he knows the end of your story. He knows there will come a day when the chaos you feel will end. He knows when this global pandemic is going to end. He knows when racial equality will become realized. He knows when the shackles of addiction and brokenness will fall off. He knows the end of our stories. And because of that, we can rest in His presence. We can be at peace because even when it doesn't feel like there's an end to our story, He knows it. And He's with us in it. We must put our faith in Him because it's only Him that we can trust mind, body, and heart that whatever the end of our story is, that mo- it is going to end with us in his arms. The God of the universe is in the boat with us. And that leads us to our second point. So he's present with us in our chaos. Now we see that we must put our faith in him because he has power over it. Um, one of my favorite things I used to love to do when I was a kid, right, um, was walk up to a, an automatic door, right? And you know, the sensors are there, but you would act like, you're the one that opened it, you know? I would say that that's, I would act like I was using the force, but I used a Star Wars reference last week, and, you know, I can't do two in a, two in a row. But anyway, uh, you know, we like to think that we have control over those kinds of things, right? Uh, or like I saw this video of a guy this week, he was out, and he had like a drink, and there was like flashing lights, and he held it up, and like the light hit the cup, and it like exploded in this like kaleidoscope of light, and he was like, ah, it was like amazing. Um, it was like he was like harnessing light, you know, is essentially what it was. Anyway, I don't know. It was awesome. But there's this certain fascination that we have of being able to like control nature, right? Or have power over it. And yet we don't. But Jesus does, right? 
And in verse 38 and 39, when they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Here we have probably the biggest display of power by Jesus so far. Up to this point in Mark, he'd exercised demons, he'd done healings, he'd performed miracles. And in this time in Jerusalem, there were other magicians and healers and people that claimed to do the same. But none of them had rebuked the wind. None of them had told the waves to stop. And they obeyed. There's actually none of them that would have even imagined to claim that. Because the, the, the idea is so preposterous, so big, that they wouldn't even say that they could do that. And yet, Jesus Christ, the power of the Creator who is at the beginning of all things, put that power on display, and the immediate danger that disciples in were no match for Him. The chaos of the storm was powerless against the One who brought order to the universe. So this was not a coincidence, right? This was a display of power. This was not a simple suggestion that he said. This was a declaration of his deity. This was not, uh, this was Jesus entering into chaos, not just of hearts, but of nature itself and claiming mastery over it. Where the disciples feared death, Jesus declared life through the power of three words. Where sin creates chaos, the power of Jesus brings peace. I think this is perhaps one of the most important things for us to grasp this morning. Jesus has power over sin itself. If the storm, at least in part, represents evil and sin in the world, then what a commanding moment over evil when Jesus says, Peace, be still. And it obeyed. The same is true for the sin that's raging in our own hearts. Christ has power over it, and he's looking at me, and he's looking at you, and he's saying, Peace. Be still. Think of the cross. Think of the utter chaos that Jesus felt. That he willingly allowed to be poured out onto him. The wrath of God, present because of our sin, our rebellion, our brokenness, was satisfied because at the cross, Jesus took that on his back and let it crush him. He submitted to that destruction for our sake. And he did it so that the power of sin could be destroyed forever. In his death, the power of of sin over us was destroyed. And in his resurrection, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to let the chains of that sin drop off us. So in Jesus' defeat of death, he claimed mastery just like he claimed mastery over the storm. So, so what does that have to do with faith? Here's what I think. Our tendency is to believe that that's true intellectually. To acknowledge it. That first level of faith, right? But as we saw a few chapters ago in Mark, even the demons acknowledge that. We may even make it to the second step of faith where we trust that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can be free from sin and that he is our savior. But here's where I think we sometimes miss it. Are we willing to follow him, submit to his lordship in all of our life, and actually live like the power of sin and chaos was broken on the cross? Are we willing to live that way? 
Often people talk about living free or, or being free in Christ, and I think this can be a confusing sentiment. What does it mean? Does it mean that we have license to sin or do whatever we want or we're free to, to be whoever we want to be? But I think actually being free in Christ is submitting to his power both in, over our lives and over the sin in our hearts. It's to be free from the power of our sins and instead turn in submission to the king who saved us. Our tendency is to think that we can have mastery over the sin in our hearts, that we can will our way through it or past it. And yet Jesus is saying that mentality is what got mankind where it is, right? In the garden. Instead, Jesus is saying, look to me. Find freedom in me. Put your faith in me. And then you'll be free. When we follow Jesus completely and fully, putting our faith in him, mind, heart, and body, that is when we understand what it means to truly be free. Because we begin to live actually like the power of sin has no longer any hold over us. So my encouragement to you this morning is this. In your chaos, in your brokenness, in your sin, Christ has claimed peace. Be still. Because of the power of the cross, that chaos doesn't hold you in its grips anymore. It can be gone, vanished in the light of the death, in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Its power pales in comparison to his. So let's live that way. The shackles of sin and the chaos it creates in our hearts have fallen off at the feet of the cross. So we've seen that uh, putting faith in Jesus We're able to do that because he's present in our chaos. He has power over our chaos. And I want to see his purpose for it. Verse 40, he says, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? In the Greek, there's a play on words here. So when Jesus asked if they were afraid, it says that they were filled with great fear. But literally in the Greek, it reads, They feared a great fear. And this is playing off that afraid in verse 40. Why are you afraid? Well, internally they were fearing a great fear. The nuance of this is that uh, they're shifting from a wrong kind of being afraid to the right kind of fear. And this right kind of fear is um, the fear that looks at something and says this. What I've seen is so big, so magnificent, so other, that I don't even have a box to put it in. I'm awestruck. In that last verse, the question of who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him is this admonition from those disciples that what they've seen is unlike anything they've ever seen before. And after this, they'll never be the same. Because when you have a true encounter with God, everything changes. But the phrase in verse 40 keeps sticking out to me. He asked them, have you still no faith? Still. After all this, do you still not believe? This might be the most human part of the story. Uh, The disciples, after following Jesus, hearing him teach, watching him minister, heal, do miracles, still didn't believe. Over and over again, they'd seen his glory, and they missed him. But when those winds died and those waves retreated, it was like they saw him for the first time. That awe didn't last for them. And if you're like me, it doesn't always for me either. But it doesn't, always, it doesn't have to be that way. 
There's perhaps no bigger potential for Christ to be glorified than when we are struggling or in chaos or broken down for our sin, just like those disciples were. And when we submit to him in that chaos, when we actually do it, there's actually great potential for him to use our struggle, our brokenness, for his glory. Christ is glorified when we let him enter into our stuff and bring his healing and his power and his glory in the midst of it. And this doesn't mean that it's easy. This doesn't mean that we can slap a everything happens for a reason bumper sticker on our car and leave it at that. But it does mean that Jesus Christ enters our stuff, our chaos, our brokenness, and he brings his grace and love and truth even when we don't see it. The means that our pain, our struggle, was not without purpose. What happens? What happened when they were so terrified, so desperate that they woke him up? It was like they saw him for the first time. So maybe the purpose of all that you're going through this morning is to help you see Jesus. Maybe in a way you never have before. Maybe in a way more realized and clear than ever before. Maybe you'll see him for the first time. Your pain, your struggle is not without purpose because Christ Jesus is with you. Think again of the cross. The cross that's such a paradox to our faith. The cross that seems like defeat, perhaps even to the disciples imagining that Jesus' whole life and ministry was without purpose. But it's in that defeat, actually, in that agony on the cross, that God's purpose was realized. And it was realized in Jesus, whose death brought victory. When it looked like the hope of the world went into the tomb, up from the grave he rose again. When it seemed like chaos would, rules, uh, would rule, the resurrection promised shalom. So I do wonder if the disciples thought that Jesus' life was for naught, without purpose on that Friday as his head slumped down on the cross. I wonder if they thought all their time, their hope in him, their belief that he was the Messiah was wrong. I wonder if on that Friday how much pain they felt. And I wonder if on that Friday they said, what was the purpose of it all? And then I wonder what Sunday felt like to them. I wonder the glorious Sunday when he rose again and met them. I wonder the relief, the joy, and the awe that they felt and a reminder of the purpose of Jesus Christ and his work in his kingdom. There, this is such an encouragement for us because some of you might still feel like you're in Friday. What's the point of this whole thing? Is Jesus who he says he is? I think we all get there at times when it feels like there's no end or purpose in sight for the struggle that we're going through. But I promise, and the promise of the gospel is that Sunday's coming. And it may still feel like you're in Friday, but Sunday is coming. See Jesus clearly this morning. Put your faith in Him, and your purpose in life will be reoriented away from yourself and towards Him.